Hello, how are we? Wow, three people are actually alive. This is the 1040 or 50 or 1115. You should be awake by now. You should actually be on coffee cup number two or three or tea two or three right now or monster, you know, something like that. So I'm Aaron. I'm not Tony, as I already said. Um, and Tony is either incredibly behind where he thought he was going to be or he was incredibly ahead and is making notes. So he wrote the notes for this next chunk of Ephesians 4 that we've been in for eternity, kind of like the Israelites wandering the wilderness. It's like nine miles, but God has them wander in circles till they actually learn their lesson. Um, that's been us in Ephesians. We've been in Ephesians for like ever. Um, I'm told we actually did finish Philippians. How many of you remember when we were in Philippians? I'm told we finished that. I don't remember finishing that, but apparently we did. So we've been in Ephesians. We're in Ephesians 4, and he got to the end of finishing his notes for what would have been his rendition of this, and he said, stink, which is, you know, what Tony says. He always says, stink. Uh, stink, I feel like Aaron should probably teach this. So whether Tony was gone or not, you're going to get me anyway. So, surprise. Um, yeah. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read Ephesians 4, 11 through 32. But as I'm reading that, what I want you to do is I want you to actively listen and to look and see how often that section of Scripture refers to us as the church as belonging to one another in some way as being tied together, as being unified, as identifying us as one thing. So I'm gonna read and then we'll go through it. So if you open your Bibles to Ephesians 4, verse 11. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you. There should be, except I stole this one. So if there's not a Bible in front of you, it's possible that I stole this one from you and I'm sorry. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you don't own one, you can have this one, it's new. These are all fairly new, like they don't fall apart, they're not flimsy. So you can take it, if you don't like it, I have better Bibles in my office, you can have one of those. If you don't like that, then we can get you a super nerdy, geeky 2000 XD25, Bi I made that up, Bible. Whatever suits your needs, and we can get one for you. We would love to do that. Um, so Ephesians 4, 11 through 32. It says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and they are separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them 
due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way you have learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor as we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. And do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must no longer steal, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. And do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may be helpful, that it may, be benef that it may benefit, excuse me, those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you've been sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Amen. So as we work through that, you can see how he is ebbing and flowing this idea of belonging to each other, of being connected, of each of us being important to the whole process of growing up into the fullness of Christ. So I'm just going to break it down. So if we look at verse 11, it says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists and the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. There's a lot of words. So, what did he just say? Well, he said that he gave the prophets, the teachers, the evangelists, the apostles, the pastors, for what? to do ministry, to do the work of ministry? No, he said he gave them to build up the body to do the work of ministry. The body. Who's the body? Well, the body is all of you. So pastors exist. Teachers exist. Evangelists exist to build you up, to strengthen you up, so that you, it says, can perform the works of service so that we all now, we grow into the fullness of Christ. Hear me when I say this. I cannot grow into the fullness of Christ without you. You might not have the gift or the ability to stand in front of people and teach, fine. But you have other gifts that I don't have. You have other abilities that I don't have. I am utterly dependent on you 
functioning in your gifts, in your abilities, in your calling to grow up into the fullness of Christ completely and utterly. There is no way that I, by myself, grow into the fullness of Christ. There's only the body that grows into the fullness of Christ, and you and I are members of that body equally. So pastors exist, evangelists exist. How many of you know who Billy Graham is? Okay, the 1040 actually knows who Billy Graham is. Awesome, 1050, it's the 1050, whatever time it is. I don't know what time it is, but I know who Billy Graham is. Um, So Billy Graham, for those of you who don't know, was this guy who uh, is, is Billy Graham still alive? Lord help me, yeah. Okay, he's still alive. He is this guy who, um, sorry, Billy Graham. No, you'll never see this, it's fine. Um, So Billy Graham is this guy who would pack out stadiums full of people and he would give sermons and he would teach and people would feel compelled to surrender their life to Christ. And there are pictures, if you Google it, everybody know what Google is? It's the internet. Well, Google isn't the internet, but mostly the internet. Yeah, if you Google that, Imgur something, if you look for it and type in Billy Graham, you'll see stadiums packed with people, dozens, hundreds, thousands of people walking towards to give their life to Christ. And people wanna say, there's Billy Graham the evangelist. And I would say, well, kind of. There's Billy Graham, the evangelizer. But what is an evangelist? Well, Scripture just said that an evangelist exists to train up the body to do the works of service. So Billy Graham, the evangelist, exists not in front of you, not when he's standing in front of tens of thousands of people. He exists when he closes his door and talks to a man or a woman about how they can share their faith with someone else. When he equips them to actually go and do the work of ministry. That's when he's functioning in his his gift of evangelism. Because scripturally, we're all called to do evangelism, aren't we? All of us are called to share the faith, the hope that is within us. All of us are called to do that. Not just Billy Graham. So it can't be that when he's standing and sharing his faith, he's being an evangelist because all of us are called to do that. Well, what is, it, what is the gifting of evangelists? Well, an evangelist can equip you to do the work of ministry, to share your faith, to give you knowledge, to give you wisdom, to give you insight, and to equip you to do that. So that's Billy Graham, the evangelist. So when Tony gets up here, Brad gets up here, I get up here and we teach, what we're doing is not ministry, period. We're doing a part of ministry. And our part in this ministry on Sundays is to proclaim the gospel to you, to share the truth with you, to embolden you in it, to equip you so that the second you step out of those doors or the second the service ends, you meet and mingle and share your faith and encourage one another and be built up into the fullness of Christ. That's what we're doing. What I'm doing right now, if you look, if all of us are a body, how many of us are actively participating in what's going on right now? Chuck is looking at something. I am standing here. There are kids workers, Lord bless them, who are working with your kids right now. There's a couple people on camera. That's it. So how many, I don't know how many of you are here. Let's say there's 150 people. Out of 150 people, 20 people are doing something. That's not the body, but we are gathered here today to be subject to the word, that I'm encouraged by the word, you're encouraged by the word, and that my giving the word and receiving the word and sharing the word with you is 
filling all of us up so that then after this, we go out into the world. So we come together, we pull out, we come together to worship God, give thanks, be subject to his word together, and then we move out in life doing the work of ministry. But it's not just the staff, it's not just pastors, it's all of you in all of life, and all of life is ministry. So, says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So all of us working together, all of us pouring into one another, all of us taking responsibility, all of us investing. I need you. You need me. He needs her. They need each other. Look across the aisle right now. Each of you need one another. Don't just look at me. Look, you need each other. If you're up there, I don't know, turn around. You need each other. We need each other. It's not just about the pastors and the teachers if they're doing their jobs correctly, it's about all of us and you will be emboldened and enabled to do it. So then he says, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves. Then when? When all of us in love take up our neighbor and love them and serve them with our gifts and pursue them. When we do that, when we take ownership of one another, says, then we will no longer be infants. So the image he's giving you of when you're alone, when you're isolated, when you are with yourself, the only thing that you are like an infant, and imagine an infant at sea being tossed to and fro by the waves. But he says, when all of us are exercising our gifts, all of us are pouring into each other, all of us are loving one another, all of us have this ownership then we'll no longer be tossed by the waves. When we link arms and stand firm together, we can't, it takes so much more to knock us over, so much more. But when we're isolated and when we're alone, it doesn't take anything. We're like a baby in the ocean. Just a little wave will knock it over. But we are called to live in this fullness, this togetherness, this belonging. It says then, when we're functioning in this way, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. In love, then, when we're pouring our lives out for one another, in love, then and only then can we grow into the fullness of Christ. It's not enough for me to teach. It's not enough for an evangelist to evangelize. It's not enough. But why? 
because we are all the body of Christ and we are all growing into the head of Christ, that we would become more and more like Christ and the only way that we're going to be able to become like Christ is by clinging to one another, by speaking the truth in love. Now, you can, we talked about this last week, you can speak the truth and not do it in love. And you can love without speaking the truth. It's possible to do either one of those things. So you can speak the truth in love in a general sense. So I love you. So I am sharing the truth with you. But I don't know and I don't love you as much as a husband and a wife know one another or best friends know best friends. I don't know you that way. So in some capacity, my ability to speak the truth to you in the way that you need it is hindered. So I can't do the work of ministry on my own. I can't possibly maintain relationships with all of you in a healthy way. I don't have time. And my wife barely gets enough of my time as it is, so get in line. But, but together, we can. Now, Scripture uses a word here. It uses the word ligament. It says, instead, speaking the truth in love, then we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So as we speak the truth in love, as we actively seek to actually love the people we encounter and speak the truth to them, as we do that, the body of Christ will grow into him, that together, individually, as individuals, we will look more like Christ, but also as a body, we will look and act more like Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together. So from Christ, the whole body, as Christ is the anchor, Christ is the focal point. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So real quick, this is a bicep, right? Well, okay, this would be a bicep if I had a bicep, right? <laughs> And this would be a tricep, right? Major muscles, we know those. We don't really, we kind of know what a ligament is, kind of. It does a thing, it keeps things held together. I could have the biggest bicep in the world. I don't, I could, probably not. I have a tiny frame, but you know, someone could have the biggest bicep in the world. And if their ligaments are shot, it doesn't matter. This arm's not moving. It's not moving. What does that mean? Well, that means each of you, you might not think, well, I'm not really a mouthpiece or I'm not really a bicep, amen. I'm not really a tricep, amen. I get it, but are you at least a ligament? Are you at least a ligament? The Bible says, yes, you are. And you're held together by Christ. So you are held together by Christ. You are a ligament. And if you are not functioning in the way that you ought to, if you are not in love, caring for those and speaking truth, this arm's not moving doesn't matter how big this bicep is. There are way better preachers than me. There are way better teachers than me. There are way bigger biceps than me. But guess what? All of it is for nothing if the ligaments aren't alive and growing and straining. So all of that is in and through Christ. And we all grow together as in love, each work does its part. Now, this, this seems a little 
he, he transitions here and he's going to do a little bit of mirroring. It's comparing opposites so you, you understand, you know, what's black? Well, black's the opposite of white. What's red? What is the opposite color of red? Green, thank you. See, there's an artist in the room. So there's a, green's the opposite of that. So you understand the colors by, you can understand the colors by understanding what they're not. Uh, I'm not big, Tony is big. So if you put us together, you would know what big is by saying, well, you at least begin to have an idea of what big is. And that's what Paul does here. Verse 17, he says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, bless you, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do and the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. So he's just got done talking. It sounds like a Debbie Downer. Like this is, a, this is like where if I had you over at my house, I would make a joke and I would think it was funny, but it was actually kind of like morbid or dark and you're like, oh, that wasn't really that funny. Oh my gosh. Kind of like this one. Um, but it seems like he's just talked about this great exposition about love and belonging to one another and how awesome it's gonna be and how each one of us is so vital and important. And then he says this really Debbie Downer thing, like, well, don't be like the Gentiles. Like, oh man, we we're just on a party. This was cool. And he says, no, 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 you need to hear this. Don't be like the Gentiles. And look at the words that he uses to describe the Gentiles. He says, the Gentiles, they are no longer live as Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding. So stop. Let's understand what we're reading here. So they're darkened in their understanding. Okay, every single one of you, picture being at your apartment or your house or wherever you live, okay? You're there. It's nighttime. So you have the lights on. Why do you have the lights on? Because it's dark, so you want to see. Okay, so when the lights are on, you can see. When the lights are off, it gets harder to see. Now imagine we go out your front door. So walk out your front door wherever you are, unless you're like, you live right on you know, Park Ave or something, don't necessarily walk into the street. But, you know, in your mind, walk out and fixate on where the closest woods are, closest body of woods. Now it's dark time, remember? So you're walking, dark time, nighttime. So you're walking out. So as you're walking out away from the light, it gets darker and darker, right? What begins to happen when it gets darker? What, what happens to your vision? You can't see. You can't see. Yeah, so you can't see. Eventually, you start walking around like this, right? Because you don't want to trip on the thing that you just tripped on, you know, half a mile back when you're walking in the dark. I don't know how many of you do that. So let's think of something that we all know about. How many of you drink too much coffee at about eight or nine and then go to bed and wake up at about two or three? Yeah, amen, you ever do that? Drink coffee, something, and you gotta pee, right? You wake up and you gotta pee, let's just be blunt. But when you wake up and you gotta pee, the only thing that you're thinking about is, oh man, I gotta, oh geez, okay. So you're in, you're in your bed or wherever and you roll over and hopefully you don't hit your head because somehow, you know, you're sleeping and all of a sudden you're sleeping like this and you like, so hopefully you dodge the headboard. Then you try to plant your feet on the ground. So you get your feet on the ground and you're like, okay, we made it. We just gotta get to the bathroom. And so your brain is all foggy. It's darkened, you're not, it's not firing like it should. 
And so the first thing that you do after you rub the sleepies out of your eye is you accidentally kick the cat or you accidentally kick the dog. And you're like, ah! So then what do you do? Well, you start groping in the darkness for something. In the darkness, you start groping for something. A wall, the closet door, the cabinet, wherever. Just something so you can try to figure out where in the world you are for the moment. So you start grasping and then you try to make your way, inevitably stubbing your toe and regretting the entire experience. Well, that's what he's talking about. They're darkened in their understanding. In the way that they look at life, they're like you when you wake up at 2 a.m. and just grasping. But remember, last week, Tony talked about how all of us at some point in time were like this and how all of us still, when we live in the old self, are like this now. It's a great image. So they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. They have lost all sensitivity. They can't see. They don't, none of their senses are working. They don't, they don't feel anything. They have no clue where they're at. And they have given themselves over to what? To sensuality. Grasping in the dark for something something of substance, something that gives them a sense of security in the midst of the darkness, having lost the sight that they had, having lost the vision that we have in Christ, having not had that, they're just groping in the dark like you when you wake up in the morning and you're desperately just trying to get to the bathroom. In the same way, they've lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed." This last statement, full of greed. When you wake up at two in the morning, what are you not thinking of? Anything else or anyone else other than yourself and the fact that you have to go to the bathroom right now. That's all you're thinking about. In the same way, these people, he says, are full of greed. So he just got done explaining what it is to be the body of Christ and this glorious picture of us needing each other, belonging to one another, being built into the image of Christ, this beautiful imagery. And then he says, don't be like the Gentiles. What are the Gentiles like? They're fixated, groping in the darkness. Don't be like that. Don't be like that. And they're full of greed. They only think about themselves. So you might be like, oh, I'm not really like those gentle, or Gentile guys or Gentile women. Well, do you ever only think about yourself? So if somebody makes you angry, are you thinking of them when you snap back? Or are you thinking of yourself? Yeah, all of us, right? All of us are guilty of this. We wake up in the morning and the first thought in our head is, I'm hungry, if we didn't go to the bathroom at two in the morning, now I have to go to the bathroom. Uh, and then we start thinking about our day and our mind is off and you know what we don't consider? We don't consider Jesus who we're growing into the image by his grace. We don't consider the body. We don't consider anyone else. Takes three or four cups of coffee and then we're good. Then we can tolerate each other. But by nature, we're bent this way. That's the old self. But then Paul says, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and you were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. 
So if sin is selfish and sin is darkness and sin is separating and sin does this stuff to us, why in the world do we do it? Because we all know it, right? When you snap at someone, it doesn't fix anything. When you cut someone off trying to get somewhere and then you see them at the light and they laugh at you, it doesn't fix anything. You didn't get there any sooner. So why do we sin? Because deceitful desires. Because we're groping in the darkness. Because we want relief in the moment. And sin promises relief. But it never gives it, does it? It says next time, this way, it will. Next time, this way, it will. This time when I yell at you and tell you how complete fool you are, you'll get it and we'll be great. Oh man, didn't really work out that way, sorry. Yeah, that's, that's what, what sin does. If you look at Genesis, in the beginning, the first sin says you will be like God. Well, let's read this. It says, they've been corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your mind. That's how you're supposed to be. And to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. What did the serpent say in the first sin? In the story of Genesis, you will be like God. If you eat from this tree, you will be like God. And you know what God just said? I wanted you to be like me in the first place. I wasn't giving you anything you didn't already have, infinitely more in Christ. And that's the way our sin is. We think that this thing feels good, and it does for the moment, and then it leaves us. It takes something from us. It breaks us down. It destroys us. It creates distance. Christ says that when we love one another, when we live in the new self, we're actually bonding. We're being pulled together. And in our being pulled together, reflect and look more like Christ. So there's an interesting way to think about this. So if you think about sin, a lot of people, um, when, when, when Christians start talking about sin, are like, why are you guys always talking about sin? You know, what, just back off. What's, it's not your business what I do with my life, which to some degree, okay, maybe, unless I love you, then it is kind of my business because I love you and I want well for you. But what is sin? Sin is always deceptive. There is never a point when sin is not deceptive. So if somebody is living in sin, they're living in deception. Meaning they think that the thing that they're giving their life to is actually gonna give them life back. And it won't, 100% of the time. Nothing God calls sinful is life-giving. It might look life-giving. It might feel life-giving. But in the end, it's emptiness, it's darkness, it's selfishness, it's bankrupt of everything. But what Christ calls us to when we put on our new self is that we would grow and be created to be like God, that we would become like God in true righteousness and holiness, that we would be like God. We can't even fathom what God is like. We can't even begin to fathom his character. We see it on the cross. You mean I might love like God loves? You might, I, I might embrace people like Christ has embraced me, I might become like that forever, that I might grow increasingly in being like this compared to I feel good for the moment. C.S. Lewis has a really great word picture of this and anytime I get to teach, I'm going to try to expose you to as much good C.S. Lewis as I can, um, like I should and any good person would. So he says that it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong 
but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We were created to enjoy fellowship with an infinitely creative, loving, gracious, just, merciful God. And we turned in in ourselves for created things. We stopped worshiping the creator God, Romans says, and worship created things. We were meant to experience boundless, infinite joy in Christ forever. When people talk to me about how uh, if they'll say something like, going to hell, if, if this is gonna get me to hell, then it's a lot of fun, so I'm gonna go because that's gonna be where the party's at. And I wanna say, oh my gosh, you don't even understand that the God who speaks and in a universe poosh, unravels, that there are galaxies that we'll never even understand or be able to reach, just existing now, spinning around, that there's hums and sounds in space that we'll never even fully understand, that there are colors right now that we, can't, that we know that we can't see, that all of this exists, and he's an infinite God of infinite creativity, and he wants to have a party when we get to be with him in the new heavens and new earth. The first thing he wants to do is throw down and have a party. Look at the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son goes away, he takes his father's riches, and he thinks that in what he's pursuing, he's going to find fulfillment. But in the end, he's left serving pigs, slop, wishing only that he might eat the pods that he's feeding the pigs. That's how low he goes. And you know what he remembers? The goodness of his father. He remembers that his father's servants eat better than he is. So he, you know what, he says, I'm gonna be a servant to my father. I'll go back and I'll beg him and plead him to allow me to be a servant. And as he's walking up the road, the father is looking for him and throws caution to the wind and runs down the road and embraces him and says, my son, slay the fattened calf, get all of the best stuff. We're gonna party like we've never partied before. That's how God reacts. So you're trading and in the old self, you're settling for mud pies and slums, but you're invited to infinite joy, to a vacation at the beach. Who wants to eat mud pies? Who wants to go on an all expense paid trip to the best beach in the world? Amen. Right? But that, that's what we do. It's because we become deceived. Hebrews says that we're supposed to encourage each other daily so that our hearts do not become hardened and we become deceived by sin. So we need one another because we're so prone to, put, to forget to put off the old self and put on the new self. We need each other speaking the truth in love. If we're gonna have any hope of walking in this eternal joy, this growing up and bubbling up of constituted joy that led Christ through the cross. The Bible says that Christ endured the cross for the joy set before him. He endured the wrath of God for millions, for the joy. Can you imagine the joy before you that you, there, there would have to be a confidence in the joy in front of you that you would have to know 
that this joy is gonna be way worse than the eternal wrath of God being poured out. How awesome is that joy? And that joy is for us. But so often we settle for mud pies. So, it says, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds so that you can see, so that your senses come back to you, so that you have a heart that sees and senses all of these things, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each one of you must put off falsehood. So now he goes from kind of big picture to small picture. So he says, okay, what does that practically look like? What does that mean? So therefore, each one of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. So he says, put off falsehood, lie. Don't lie. Stop lying to your neighbor. Well, why do we lie? We lie because we don't ultimately want you to know us. We say that we like something when we don't have a clue about what it is because we know that you like it and you will like it that we like it. So we lie, thinking that that means you will like us now. But there's one problem. You don't even know what that band is or that thing is. It's not you they like. They like the you that you presented them. So what you've done is you've actually put a false person in between you and them. And every time we lie, in every capacity, save one, I know there's some ethicists out there who say, well, what about when the Nazis come and there's a Jew in my basement? You lie to the Nazi. You love the Jew, you lie to the Nazi. Okay, now we put that aside. Every other time, when you're lying to someone, you're presenting a false self. When you put that false self, you're putting distance between you. And when you're putting distance between you, you're taking a step away from Christ taking a step away from the body and you're putting yourself on your own. You're isolating yourself. You're becoming more like the babe that's tossed to and fro in the oceans. So stop lying and speak the truth. But the stuff that's inside of me is really bad. Amen, me too. Jesus died for that. It's forgiven. But let's walk in holiness. Yeah, but I've been hurt before. Amen, me too. We'll get to that, but amen, me too. So we are to stop speaking falsely and to speak the truth in love to one another. Why? Because we all belong to the same body. So uh, do any of you know about the disease that your arm doesn't do what, like you have no control over your arm, the way your neurons fire, it just does whatever it does? Yeah, lying, that's lying. So instead of being able to function healthily when you lie, when you create disturbances in the communication, when you separate it, it can't function how it's supposed to. So speak the truth in love because we belong to each other. Because when this arm is not doing what it's supposed to do, it inhibits us. It pulls us all down and it pulls you down. This arm was meant to do things. You're a ligament in this arm. There's wonderful good things for you to do But if you're not being honest, if you're not being known, if you're not being connected, if you're not being built up, it's hard. So do not let, um, therefore, each of you put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give 
the devil a foothold. So you can be angry and not sin. Everybody open your mouth and close it. Okay, open your mouth. You're all ugly. Close it. Look, you might be angry, but you just didn't sin. You held it in. So I know that you all can do it. I believe in you. I just witnessed it by the power of the Spirit. I'm sure that you can do it. So it's possible. You're not all ugly, by the way. You're all very beautiful. Um, But it's possible to be angry, to be offended, to say that something is wrong and should be something that I am angry about. There are lots of things broken in this world that we should be angry about. There are lots of things in our relationships that are broken that we should be angry about. But in our anger, we aren't to sin. So what does that mean? That means when we get angry, when that passion of anger bubbles up inside of us, it's righteous until we then decide to do something sinful as a result. So if you punch somebody because of the righteous anger you have because they're taunting your brother or your sister, well, you just kind of cross the line over, you know, understandably angry and now sinning by beating the tar out of this guy. Um, that's what we're talking about here. So in your anger, do you understand? but it says something interesting. It says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. So it's okay to be angry, but... Don't let the sun go down on your anger because what happens when the sun goes down on your anger? Well, your anger puts you in opposition and conflict with the person or persons or thing you're angry with. And as more time passes, it grows. All of us are familiar with, I think most of us, maybe not all of us, are familiar with this. You know those people you go to the grocery store and you see them and you go, oh, I suddenly need some milk. You know, something happened. There was conflict there, and you let the sun go down on your anger for seven years. So there's a lot of awkwardness and distance there. And he's saying, what Paul's saying is that's creates space for the devil to work. Because now there's this awkwardness. You belong together. You're part of one another. In Christ, we're being built up into this body. We belong to one another, but we've let this anger, without addressing it, without addressing it with forgiveness or repentance, without doing anything, we've let it distance us. And it will continue to distance us. And in that space, the devil is able to work. The devil is able to deceive. Because when we're held together, if the devil is telling me something and you're right beside me, you can say, that's a lie. But if you're all the way on the other side of the supermarket and he's telling me something, like, man, you're really an awful person. You really screwed that one up. Well, guess what you can't do? You can't tell me that's a lie. You can't tell me you forgive me. You can't tell me. There's space now for him to work. So it says, uh, do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. So there's a process here. So the person who is stealing, first of all, stop stealing. But why do you steal? You steal because you want something and you don't care about anyone else. You want that thing, or you want that stuff, you want that person, you want whatever it is, and you don't care about anyone else or anything else. You don't care about the person you're stealing it from, and you don't care about the people beside you. Robin Hood exception, most of the time people are stealing for themselves. So you steal for yourself. So what is that? That's the old self. The old self is consumed with self, groping in darkness. It says stop stealing. Then it says get a job. So you're stealing, stop stealing. Next step is to get a job. Take ownership, take responsibility for yourself. 
So before Christ, take ownership, take responsibility for yourself. You don't have because you don't ask. And when you ask, James says, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you might spend on yourself. So get that, set that aside, and be honest with God. But then it says, not only that, but to do something useful with their hands. What is he talking about? He's talking about spiritual gifts. This is all in the context of talking about loving and serving one another. So you have to take responsibility for yourself, but also you have gifts that you can serve us with. All work is a service, right? Everything that we do is serving one another. There are people who have gifts of teaching who teach. There are people who are gifts of accounting who balance our taxes and keep the IRS over our back. There are people who have these different talents and abilities and we all need each one of those people. Each one of them is important for the flourishing of humanity. In the same way, each one of you, each one of us in the body is important for the flourishing of the body. So God has given you things, useful things to do with your hands, with your life. Do those things. And then he says this way. He says, not only that that person should get a job and be responsible for themselves, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. And here's the perspective shift. So the person who is stealing is only consumed with themselves. The person who is working for the sake of someone else is consumed with the well-being of those around them. They're not working for a paycheck for themselves. They're working for resources to bless everyone or specific people. So when they go to work, they work as if unto God and they work through God to love his people. Work kind of sucks sometimes. Work really kind of sucks when it's all about us and the paycheck and our day and the thing that's going on and we're consumed with ourselves because work is a denial of pleasure for most of us. Some of us have really great jobs that we really love and Lord bless you. Um, That sounds like I don't enjoy my job, I should say. Most of my life I have not enjoyed my job. I do, in fact, enjoy my job now. Anyway, um, but there's a perspective shift that happens when you look at your stuff. Remember, we've been talking about all that we used together, right? We talked about gleaning and about how we leave margin. Here it is again. So you work not to have enough to meet your needs, but also to leave margin. So you structure the very way that you live and work so that you can meet the needs of those around you. In the same way, as brothers and sisters in Christ, you live and feed on Christ so that you can love and bless those around you. Not only so that you know and understand who you are in Christ, but so your brother and sister next to you, take them with you so they can understand who they are in Christ. And as if all of us do this and link arms, we press in. So, do, next is, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Okay, we'll see. So far, we're 0 for 2, and it makes me really happy. We'll see if you guys can uh, make me sad. So, how many of you have ever heard this verse quoted as the reason why you don't say certain four-letter words? Ah, oh, you made me sad. Okay. Well, what I'm going to say is that that's a vast over-reduction of what this is actually calling you to and the life that's in this passage. Because what this passage actually says is, do not let any unwholesome talk, so there's a category of talking, come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So unwholesome talk is any talk 
any talk at all whatsoever that has anyone other than another person being built up in mind. So unwholesome talk is talk that's focused on you, talk that's focused on the bad things about other people, talk that's focused on your flaws without any sort of desire to see you reconciled and to grow in those, that's unwholesome talk. You cannot say a four-letter word and tear somebody to pieces. And that's unwholesome talk. Saying, I love you, and yeah, I love you, are two totally different things. The second one is unwholesome talk. The first one is genuine expression of who you are and your desire to love them. So any talk that is not in love is unwholesome talk. The Bible says that we will be judged for every idle word that we've said. Every idle word. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Amen. But that's what unwholesome talk is. And to reduce it to not swearing, okay, well, I won't swear while I tear you to pieces. Great. I really appreciate that you expanded your vocabulary and used new words on me. Thanks. I really feel so much better now. That's not what it's talking about here. And then Paul always has these junk drawer terms. So if you read the epistles Paul has written, he kind of has explained some things and lays out the law. And then I guess there probably is always a person in the back of Paul's meetings. It's like, what about this? Can I say this or do this? That's okay, right? And Paul, by the inspiration of the Spirit, says, no. No, and he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Anything that grieves the person of the Holy Spirit who resides within you, who is himself your seal of confidence for the day of redemption, anything that you could possibly imagine to do with one another that doesn't bring glory to him but grieves him and hurts him and causes separation, any of that, don't do that. But think about what the opposite thing of that would be, the thing in love. Think about how to do whatever you're thinking in love. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. So band, you can get in place. So there he goes. He's like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's the junk drawer. It's like, I got my tape in there. I got my Elmer's glue in there. There's a piece of old food that fell in there that I never cleaned because it's my junk drawer. And there's uh, keys to seven people's homes. I don't remember which one's which. Don't tell them I have their keys. You know, all this stuff, that's the junk drawer. And he's like, all right, anything else in there? I almost just picture him like, and all of this stuff, slam, shuts the door. Yeah, none of that. Like, th live this way. So if you're anything like me, you go, great, I'm not doing that. Awesome, that sounds awesome. How in the world could I ever possibly hope to do that? To live that way. And he says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ, in Christ, God forgave you. So we are going to fail to put off the old self and put on the new self. Hopefully, as we walk with Christ together, less and less and less until we see him face to face. And the Bible says we are known and we know him in full. But until then, we're going to have some bumps and snags and bruises along the way. We're going to drop the ball. So what does that mean? That means those of us who have the ball dropped against us need to exercise kindness and compassion and forgive. Well, how in the world do you forgive when you're hurt? 
you see how God forgives you, loves you, embraces you. Not when you are doing your best, not on your best day. The Bible uses words like when we were at our worst, when we were still weak, while we were dead in our trespasses. The imagery here is we bring nothing to this. While we were the furthest away imaginable, then the Bible says, at the right time, at this time, when we're the furthest thing from loving of God, he sends his son for us to die on the cross. Why? To reconcile our relationship. He didn't do anything. He didn't do anything. And yet he loved us so much that he would send his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So trade in mud pies for full, infinite joy. How do you forgive one another as we fail to put off the old self and put on the new self and speak the truth in love? How do you do it? You look at God who gives you new mercies every single day. As the sun rises, new mercies and new grace for the day fall on us. And in the same way, we can love those who sin against us by basking in, resting in, pressing into the love of God expressed through Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Awesome. So I'm gonna pray and let you guys get out of here. You're actually gonna be like on time. That's a miracle. Father God, I thank you that you are with us, that you love us, that you created us, that you knit us together in our mother's womb, that you don't desire anything but for us to know you and to embrace you and to grow into the fullness of you, that you sent your son when we least deserve it to die on the cross of the death we should have died and raised him to life, bringing us with him. We thank you that you have embraced us when we were trying to run from you. And I pray that you would help us through the Holy Spirit to take off the old self and to put on the new self, to help us to see those around us and to see your son, Jesus, and to love you and to love those around us. We thank you and plead for your mercy that you always promise to give us when we fail, when we ask of you. In the times that we do fail, we ask for strength that we might love those who fail to love us by your word, through your strength. In Jesus' name, amen.